God. Amen. I hope everybody had a good night. I slept better. I woke up at four. <laughs> Be praying for me, for my voice. And maybe my stomach is kind of acting up. I ate something this morning that I didn't like, and but I should be able to survive my message. The Lord will take me through. I don't have a jacket. I don't have a suit. I cannot carry a suit. But I have the jacket of Joseph. <laughs> no, it's too heavy. It's too heavy. The luggage, they limit you how much you can carry. So we just carry enough to, for me to be able to come and preach. Yes. But the Lord has been very kind. It's good to lose your voice because of Christ. Amen. <laughs> yes. And we have had very good messages. And I wish many people had come to hear. But those who were supposed to come came. Yes. Because you cannot come to Christ by yourself. Amen. You cannot cause anyone to come to Christ. So as many as were supposed to come, they came. So if we have two people tomorrow, that's fine. Those are the ones that God wants to come. And if he wants to bring 2,000 tomorrow, they'll come. They will be outside. We'll put the speakers outside. They will come and hear. It is the work of God. It's not our work. So this gospel is a wonderful gospel. It's the most wonderful thing that we ever hear what God has done to save us Amen. from our sins. Yes. From something that we could not do for ourselves. We're not even thinking about it. Yes. If God had left us to ourselves, we would, like the rich men, the story of rich men, the rich men in Lazarus, the rich men woke up not in a hotel. Uh-huh. He woke up in hell. Yes. Oh, yes. Everything was going well for him. Mm-hmm. And the only time that he woke up, mm. all his life he was sleeping. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> he was sleeping because he was making money. Uh-huh. But when he woke up, uh-huh. Jesus said he woke up in hell. In other words, he only began to understand the matter of salvation, the need for Christ when it was too late, when he was already in hell. And the Lord has blessed us to bring his message. This message is not coming from me. I could never come up with this. It's impossible. It's impossible. God brought his message and he brought the message and he is teaching me as he is teaching you. Yes. 
We are both students of Christ. May he help us to learn. Let us go and ask for his blessing on our message this morning. Our dear and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for raising us up again this morning and to cause us to be here again to hear the testimony of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for what he has done and who he is in this salvation business, that he has saved us to the glory of his name. May he glorify himself in everything, even our salvation, even in the teaching of this gospel. May you help those who shall hear this message from afar, that they too may hear from Christ and not hear from me. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done already and all that you shall do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we are going to be in the Old Testament again. In Zechariah chapter 3. The book of Zechariah chapter 3. And there's something that I have liked that you may not have noticed. It is that people are writing notes. That's very good. You should write notes, but then you have something to go back to. You may forget one or two things, but when you write things, what I've discovered is, if you don't write anything, you forget everything. If you write something down, you don't ever need to go back to what you wrote. (laughs) Because you remember it. I don't know how that works, but that's how God made it to work. So we are in Zechariah chapter 3. And we don't have that many verses. But we have a very long message. We only have 10 verses. 10. But this may be the longest message. Zechariah 3, verse 1 to 10. The prophet recorded and said, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord Rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him we said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and if you keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I'll give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign, for behold, I am, bring forth, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone who invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. And that's the word of the Lord. Amen. There's a lot of stuff. May the Lord bless your, your heart and your mind with understanding. Now you know that we don't ever give a sermon one mess, one title. We have five titles. And I may discover some more titles as I preach. So we may end up with nine or ten. <laughs> because there's a lot of things that God has put in these things. So any of the titles can be used to bring God's message. So number one title is Remove the filthy garments from him. Remove the filthy garments from him. Remove the filthy garments from him. Number two, a filthy garment problem. A filthy garment or a dirty garment problem. And number three, I have removed your iniquity from you. I have removed your iniquity from you. Number four, the robes of vindication or the garment of vindication or the garment of righteousness. That's what vindication is saying. And number five, iniquity or sin removed in one day. In one day. Iniquity or sin removed in one day. And if you're paying attention, I'm already done with my sermon. Was that the message? Not the message. Not message. That's the message. Yeah. So if the food was ready, we could now just start eating food. Wow. 
Because I finished my message. <laughs> but let us hear how God was teaching the story of our salvation. So we are back to the Old Testament again to show you the matter of what God calls the gospel. What God calls the gospel. We have been learning that the gospel is not a new story that only began 2,000 years ago. The story did not begin in the New Testament. The story was written from before the foundation of the world. And in time, God comes to unfold it. It was rolled up. Now it begins to be unfolded with the creation. Okay? And in the life of his people. So to preach the gospel is not to tell people some useful things that they can do to make their life better. Because anybody can tell you useful things to make your life better. If you go to the bank, you meet with the bankers, they can tell you how to save your money and make your life better. But that is not salvation. (laughs) So to preach the gospel is to declare, is to announce God's revelation of Christ. And Christ was revealed not in the feeding of the people, not by giving the people free breakfast and fish. You know the story in John 6. People were looking for Jesus because he had fed them with bread and they wanted more bread. And Jesus said, no, you are looking for me, not for me. You are looking for me because you want more free food. (laughs) If you preach a gospel to give people more free food, they will come. (laughs) But in the revelation of Christ was also the revelation of God. Because Jesus is God. And God cannot be known apart from Jesus. So Jesus came to reveal God to his creation. So Christ is our only interest. And I purpose by God's grace to preach the story of Christ as he saved us from our sins. Once you have been born, you only have one problem. There's only one problem that the child of a woman will ever have 
in all their existence. It is how to make them righteous before God. If they are hungry, we can find something to give them. If they want something to eat, we can find something to give them. But if they are sinners, we have nothing to give them. So that's the matter. So we'll begin this way. And develop some background because when you have a proper gospel teaching, we should teach. The Lord Jesus spent much of of his time teaching, not healing people. Teaching. So this is where we'll begin. Zechariah was a prophet during the time of Darius, the king of Persia. Persia is modern day Iran. So this vision, this prophecy happened in Persia in the time of this king Darius. Around 522 to 486 BC. That doesn't really matter. I don't need to remember the dates. But Zechariah was a prophet in the time of prophet Haggai. Prophet Haggai. Who together with Zerubbabel were part of the people that had come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. They came back as God's fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 44 from verse 24 to 28. Isaiah prophesied that in 150 years, God would come back and release his people from Babylon to come and build the city. And that by the hand of Cyrus, who was then the Persian king, who had conquered the Medes and the Babylonians, and he set God's people free. This is all just context so that when you go and listen to the message, you have some reference of what is happening in the story. It's necessary for us to build that for your understanding. So it was when the Jews had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon that Zechariah was given this vision and other visions as recorded in the book of Zechariah. But the Jews had so far, when they got back, they had problems in rebuilding. They met a lot of challenges. There was resistance to the work that they were doing because of the Samaritans and the local people and the Jews themselves were also dragging their feet to finish the work that God had given them to do. The Jews themselves were being lazy to do the work that God had taught them to do. So according to the prophet Haggai, the Jews were neglecting 
the work that the Lord had set them free so that they may go back to Jerusalem to do. Here, Haggai 1, verse 1 to 5. The prophet Haggai, verse 1 to 5. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, These people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins. Now therefore, that says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So God comes through the mouth of Haggai and says, you guys are busy building nice houses for yourselves. But you are neglecting the work of God. Okay? So that's part of the context of what is happening. So in chapter 3 of Zechariah, we have recorded for us his fourth vision out of a total of eight visions that are recorded in the book. The first two visions are in chapter 1 of Zechariah. And the first vision is chapter 1, verse 1 to 6. And it was God's call for Israel to repent. It was God's call for Israel to repent. And the second vision is in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 to 18. Where in that vision, Zechariah met with the angel of the Lord who was riding a horse and he was standing among the metal trees and the angel of the Lord interceded for Jerusalem asking God not to destroy it for God to relent from his anger and God promised to return to Jerusalem not in his anger but with his mercy you can hear gospel in that so in chapter 2 of Zechariah, we have the third vision. It's the vision of the surveyor with the measuring line and the angel who spoke to Zechariah and said, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a city without walls. And that is saying, without needing to raise fences to protect themselves, against their enemies for the Lord said he will be their protection the city without walls is saying it is a safe city because there are no more enemies for you to defend against but also prophetically to its fulfillment in Christ Jesus 
God is prophesying. And all prophecies are fulfilled in the one person. It's Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is eschatology. So these men who say they are teachers of eschatology, they're going to tell you <laughs> how to read what is false and not false, and yet they do not know the gospel. There's no way that God will give you the knowledge of eschatology without giving you the knowledge of Christ. So in Ephesians 2, from verse 14 to 16, this is what the apostle recorded. The apostle says, Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And Apostle Paul is saying many things, but one of the things is the Jews and the Gentiles used to think that they were separate people, but in Christ, the elect from the Jews and the elect from the Gentiles have been joined together and whatever difference they had, the middle wall of separation is speaking to the temple. When you went to the temple, in the time of the temple, the Jews and Gentiles did not sit in the same place. The Jews had their own section. The Gentiles had their own section, and there was a wall of separation. And Christ is the one who removed that war of separation and he made a one people, a new man in himself. And that means the church of Christ. Okay? So there are no more wars of separation because Christ is our peace from all our enemies. And our biggest enemy was not sin and it was not the devil. Our biggest enemy was God himself. Because God says, who can deliver you from my hands? There's no one. You can be delivered from everything else, but you cannot be delivered from God's hands. So if you're on the wrong side of God, he is your biggest enemy. And there's nothing that you can do to deliver yourself. So ultimately, the problem with sin is a God problem. How then do we deal with him who has made an appointment with every one of us 
to meet with him. God has an appointment with you and me and everyone. And how shall we meet with him in peace? I came here and I was met with you in peace. I was accepted and I was loved. But how are you going to meet with God? Are you going to meet him in peace? Or are you going to meet him in pieces? The gospel says, Christ has made peace for us. He is our peace with God. Christ is our peace. Through the blood of the cross. That's how the peace was made. Okay? Zechariah 2, verse 5. God says, For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here is a picture of the church. The heavenly Jerusalem that shall come down with Jesus. Right? And I will be the glory in a myth, I will be a wall of fire to protect my church. So the New Testament is the city without walls of separation between the Jew and Gentile. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, right? Nor slave or nor free, for all are one in Christ. But also, This city will not need any physical walls for protection because Christ is the wall of protection around her. And so that takes us to the fourth vision in chapter 3. And for us to understand what is going on, we need to see the setting and the parties or characters involved in the vision. We need to make the identity or define the participants, the actors that were given in the story. Because everyone is representing something. And their theological significance, that is how they relate to the story of Christ in salvation. And unlike the three previous visions, in this vision, there are no questions that were asked by Zechariah. If you go and read the other visions, Zechariah is going to be asking questions. In this vision, Zechariah does not ask any question. And neither was there any interpretation done for Zechariah. The other visions, when Zechariah asked what those visions meant, interpretation was given to him. Zechariah just saw and heard what was being said by the angel of the Lord. So the camera, I introduced you to the camera. Because in the recording of the Bible, It is God's camera that is moving. Moving to a particular point. And that is the cross. So we're going to see God's camera 
in our story to tell the same story, but in a different way. So we will listen to the conversations and we will look at the participants in this story and we will name them. We have number one, Zechariah himself, who saw the vision. Number two, we have the Lord who is the angel of the Lord. We're going to have to define him. We have the devil. We have Satan who is there to accuse Joshua. Then we have Joshua the high priest. He's also in the conversation. We also have some angels who stood before him. So we have Zechariah. We have the angels. We have the high priest Joshua. We have the angel of the Lord. We have the devil. So Joshua was the high priest during the time of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And Zechariah had a vision of him standing before the angel of the Lord, being accused of the devil. And so now we will work the vision and the gospel teaching that the Lord would have us to see from it. Zechariah 3 verse 1. Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So Zechariah was shown Joshua standing. When you read these things, don't read them too quickly. Zechariah was, in his vision, seeing Joshua the high priest, who was standing. Joshua was the high priest of Israel. So standing tells us about the ministry of one who was appointed to be high priest. For the high priest ministered to God on behalf of his people standing. And being under the law, the Hebrews writer says, they could not ever get any rest because they made nothing perfect. There was no chair in the tabernacle for the high priest to sit in because his work was never done. Standing. The book of Hebrews says, Christ is seated. Christ is our high priest. He is seated. Why? Because he finished the work. All the other high priests standing. Because the work was not done. Christ is seated. You only sit when you are done. Otherwise you are lazy. <laughs> Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark or to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord to stand 
He had the language to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. So the Levites were they who were appointed to become priests, to minister to the Lord. Second Chronicles 29, verse 11. Second Chronicles 29, verse 11. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. So to stand before the Lord means the person who was standing was a high priest ministering before the Lord in sacrifices and offerings according to the law. But there are four kinds of standing that are mentioned in our story. There's one, number one, the standing of the high priest as a minister and intercessor and mediator for his people before God. So the minister, the high priest is standing as a minister and interceding for his people before God. That's number one standing. Number two, standing of the angel of the Lord as mediator and as the advocate, as the advocate, as the defense lawyer. He is also standing. If you read the story. Number three. There's the standing of the devil. The devil is also standing. But standing to do what? Not to minister. But to accuse. As the accuser. Of the brethren. Psalm 109. Verse 1 says. Set a wicked man over him. And let an accuser stand at his right hand. The accuser who stands at the right hand to accuse is the devil. Okay? Number four. There is the standing of one who is being accused. Because when you go into the court, the person who is being accused of whatever crime, they stand. The prosecutor also stands. And the person who is defending also stands. So we have a court session. Okay? So we need to understand those different kinds of standing so that we may be profited by the conversation. But we can also divide the four standings into two groups. Two that are priestly. Joshua and Jesus. Joshua and Jesus. After all, Joshua is the name of Jesus. 
and the other two are judicial. And that means we are in a court. And when you are in a court, you have a judge. We have accusations. We have the accused and the accuser. Okay? And so the court setting has the accuser who seeks to get someone condemned. That's what the prosecutor is seeking for the state to do, to get the person who was caught stealing to be condemned and be put in prison. Right? And if the person is a lawyer, the lawyer is on the defense side to seek the acquittal and then we have the judge who hears what is being said and they weigh the charges and the arguments and then they make a judgment to say go home or take him or her to prison. That is the judgment of the judge. So Satan is the one standing on the right hand side of Joshua accusing him before God and so the whole story is happening in a court session but also in the court there seems to be a high priest in the court. What is the high priest doing in the court? (laughs) So this is a legal matter because there are charges being pressed and a conviction is sought by the devil. And so the story is legal and yet it is also priestly in that the angel of the Lord intercedes as high priest, as the advocate, and as the judge and declares Joshua to not be guilty. So Joshua stands accused of his sin personally and on behalf of Jerusalem, on behalf of Israel, on behalf of the people that he ministered on their behalf. As a representative of the people, he also carried the sins of all his people And that means Joshua was a type of Christ. If you know your Old Testament well, you know that God appointed the high priest, one high priest at a time, to represent all the people of Israel. And the high priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, which means the high priest, when he came to God, He carried the burden of the sins of the people and he transferred them on the sacrifice by the laying of his hands. That's imputation of the sins of the people to the sacrifice. The sacrifice becomes guilty of something that he did not do. If it was a cow, it became guilty for the sins of the people because their sins had been transferred to the cow. And it will die, its blood will be shed 
and the people will be set free. So that was the function of the high priest. Okay? The high priest represented all of his people in the matter of sin. Okay? So, Israel, through the testimony of Joshua, is having a lot of challenges. Challenges that have been opened up for us to see in heaven that the devil was behind their trouble. <laughs> he was causing problems for them. He was accusing them before God that God may destroy them. That's what he's seeking. As Jesus said, the devil was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. That is what he was raised by God to do. Okay? And the devil now has some very good evidence against God's people to say, I told you, these people do not care for the Lord's work. These people are sinners. God destroyed them. And so he seeks to kill and to destroy according as his purpose. Verse 2. This is a very good message. Oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> That's why I'm being slow. It's a very good message. Follow the arguments. And you'll be blessed. Amen. Verse 2. But the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plugged from the fire? The Lord is in capital letters, if you have your Bible. And that is Yahweh. That is Jehovah. That is God's covenant name. It is his name of faithfulness to himself and to everything that he has created for his own glory. Apparently, this angel of the Lord is not just an angel like Gabriel. He is the Lord God himself. He is the angel who reveals God. And who is this angel who reveals God and yet he is separate from the Lord and yet he is the Lord. <laughs> he is the angel of the Lord who is also the Lord. He, the angel here means the messenger of Yahweh who reveals and stands for God and speaks not just for Yahweh but is Yahweh himself. <laughs> Lord Jesus. And that tells you that God is not just God the Father he is also God the Son. The Bible clearly teaches that God is the Father and he is the Son and he is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this conversation. 
But this angel of the Lord who is Lord speaks on behalf of the Lord. He is the word of God because he's speaking. And the word of God is Christ Jesus. Christ is the word of God. So when God speaks, it's Jesus who is speaking. When God says, let there be light, it's Jesus who is speaking. John 1 verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Well, in the beginning, what kind of beginning? If the word was with God in the beginning, and God is not beginning, then it means Christ is not beginning. Because he is the word. The word that was made flesh. That's John 1 verse 14. The word was made flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. He lived amongst us by taking up human flesh. And by this word, all things came to be. By this word, all things were made. And there was nothing made that was not made by him. Amen. Nothing. nothing. The devil yeah. was not made by his own devil mother. Yes. He was made by Christ. Yes. <laughs> For, Christ. Yeah. For Christ. The devil was made by Jesus. For the glory of Christ. Because God was going to use the devil to bring about sin for the glory of Christ. Yeah. Answer me? Yes. <laughs> so this is the Lord that Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah chapter 6. You see, what also I am encouraging you, my brothers and sisters, is to benefit from the word of God. You need to spend time reading it. So that you know at least what the story is about. And then when you hear how to interpret it, everything comes together. Okay? So this is the same God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. And John, in John 12, says the same thing. That Isaiah saw not just God, but he saw Jesus. So this is the identity of the angel of the Lord. And this is very important for us to understand in our story. So this angel of the Lord, who is God, rebukes the devil on behalf of God the Father. For he says the words of the Father. Whatever Christ says, those are the words of the Father. If they are the words of Christ. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And he appeals to the Lord as the one who chose Jerusalem. You see, people are busy rebuking the devil. There's nowhere in the Bible where God says we should be rebuking the devil. It's, it's nowhere. We are not called to rebuke the devil. Christ is he 
who has rebuilt the devil. The devil has already been rebuilt. <laughs> Jesus said, I saw Satan falling. <laughs> yeah? He's rebuilt. The angel of the Lord appeals to the Lord as the one who chose Jerusalem. Because it is God, the Father, who chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 4. But what was the problem? What was the real issue that has brought us to this conversation? Verse 3 of Zechariah 3. Now, Zechariah was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. So this is the problem that Zechariah, that Joshua had. Joshua, he forgot to wear his Sunday best when he came to church. That's the problem. He forgot to wear his Sunday best on Sunday. He forgot to pick up his clean clothes and the dry cleaner on Friday to be ready on Sunday. <laughs> Joshua, we're told, was wearing some filthy garments. And that means unclean clothes, stinky clothes, dirty clothes. And was standing before the angel of the Lord. Joshua should not be standing before the Lord with filthy clothes. He should not. And no one should be standing before God in that kind of Sunday attire. According to Levitical law, the high priest was supposed to wear clean linen garments, holy garments, when they came to minister before God. So how is it that Joshua is seen in this vision wearing some dirty clothes like the washer and dryer died? Or the wife got too busy and said, honey, my hands are tired. <laughs> I'm not going to wash your clothes for you. What is God saying? God is saying the filthy garments were just a picture of sin. Dirty clothes. A picture of sin. The filthy garments represented the sin that was on Joshua. And not only on Joshua, but on all those that he represented. Remember, Joshua is not representing just himself. He is representing all that are in him. He is representing all of Israel. So all their sins are seen in this filthy garment that is wearing. Joshua is loaded with sin. He is guilty. His sin is not washed. His sin is not atoned for. His sin is not paid for. And this is the reason why the devil thinks that he is going to win the case. The devil thinks that he has a good case to get both Joshua and Jerusalem to be condemned. He has the evidence. 
But why? Because the devil is the accuser of the brethren. That is what he does. So the devil has a very strong and good case. He should win. He should win against Joshua. He should win against you. It should be very easy to prosecute and get conviction and judgment. It seems it's going to be very easy for Joshua to be put in prison, to be put in hell. If the devil were to come and inspect your own clothes, it would not take him more than two seconds to find some dirty clothes in your own closet. The dirty clothes of your sin. The devil will not find it very difficult to find and accuse you of your sin. He will find it. He knows how. He has been around longer than you and I. He is stronger. He is, is smarter than you and I. Okay? So he'll find something. He'll tempt you into something. And you'll do it. And you'll come and accuse. So how do we deal with the matter? Verse 4. Then he, the angel of the Lord, answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I'll clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then he, the angel of the Lord, spoke to those who stood before him. That is, the angels who ministered to God and said, I agree with what the devil is saying. Get Joshua and throw him in jail. Send him to hell. For surely Joshua is guilty. Is, what, is that what the angel of the Lord said? No, the Lord said, take away the filthy garments from him. The Lord did not say, the devil is lying. The Lord agrees and he knows for sure that Joshua has on some dirty clothes. And he says, take away the filthy garments. He instructed that the filthy garments be immediately removed from Joshua because he understood the matter. In other words, Jesus is saying, remove the evidence of Joshua's sins so that the devil is left with nothing to accuse Because once the evidence disappears, how are you going to prosecute the matter? If Joseph's garment is taken from Miss Potiphar, how are you going to prosecute the matter? There's no more evidence. That's why she held on to it tightly. 
So the Lord, the angel of the Lord, was, as it were, tempering with the evidence. But he had every right to do so. And that is why we say the gospel is offensive. Because Jesus does not condemn you for your sins, even though he knows that you are a sinner. So once that command is given to remove the filthy clothes, there's nothing that is left to condemn the person. And once that was done, he said to Joshua, this is what the angel of the Lord said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I have removed your sin from you. And I will clothe you with rich robes. So the Lord removed the iniquity. He removed the sin from Joshua by the removal of the garments. Because it is the Lord who removes iniquity. It is the Lord who makes and makes the command that he has removed your sin from you. Amen. There's no man of God who makes that command. Yes. It is Jesus who commands. Glory. I have removed your filthy garments. Yes. Okay? And he did it. It is not Joshua's idea to remove his own sin. It was not our idea to remove our own sin. It was not Joshua's pastor. It is not our decision. It is not the sinner's prayer. Not our obedience. Not our tithing. Not our prayers. Those things don't remove sin. It is Jesus when he says, I have removed Amen. your iniquity. Yes. See the connection between the taking off of Joshua's filthy garments and the pronouncement or the declaration from the Lord. I have removed your iniquity from you. How much iniquity was removed? All of his sins. When Jesus forgives, he does not forgive some of your sins. He forgives all of your sins. Or he has not forgiven. Those are some beautiful words from the mouth of the Lord. I have removed your iniquity from you. I have forgiven all of your sin. I have removed the sentence that your sin would have brought upon you. The sentence of death and condemnation. And so these statements stand for the same thing. They explain each other. To remove the filthy garments is to remove the sin on the person who is wearing the garment. It is to justify the sinner from their sin. But the Lord did not just stop there. He also said to Joshua, See, I will also give you a new house. I say these things because that's what is being taught. <laughs> things that Jesus never said. See, I will also clothe you with robes. No, he, he did not say that. He said, I'll clothe you with rich Robes, yes. not just some garment uh -huh. that you got at the mall. Yes. This is a rich robber. Yes. So Joshua has not only had the 
filthy garments removed, that is his sins removed, he also has had a change of clothes. Christ does not just remove your sin. He also gives you a change of clothes. His own clothes. Because Joshua did not bring a new set of clothing, a suit with him when he went to be with Jesus. Jesus had another set of clothes that he gave to Joshua. A change of clothes. A change of clothes. These were not some cheap clothes. These were not bought on a sale. They were rich robes. Robes given by the Lord himself. So what does that mean? And what is happening? Isaiah 61.10. Let's go to Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with the jewels. So Isaiah speaks of the joy of God's redeemed people on account of having been covered with the robe of righteousness. And it seems that Joshua also has been covered with the same robe of righteousness. Joshua was supposed to be condemned and justly so. He had on filthy clothes to prove his just condemnation. And yet, to the people of Israel, Joshua was a righteous man. He seemed very clean to them. In their own way of looking at him, he looked like a very righteous man. Until he was before the Lord. Then his filthy garments were revealed. And the Lord recommended for the change of clothes. (laughs) It is easy to prove our unrighteousness before God. We wear it like a garment. It is easy to see. Even the devil knows that you and I are sinners. But Joshua is not condemned. And so he rejoices in his God for he has been clothed with the garments of salvation. Rich robes of Christ's righteousness. And that is what the rich robes meant. That's what I wanted you to understand. That this was not just some changing of clothes. This is God saying, one who has filthy garments of sin on, they need God to change their clothes. Okay? The righteousness of Christ. Remember our first message? We talked about the righteousness of God. That is the righteousness of God that we are being shown 
in the new clothes that God is showing us in the story. Good morning, brother. We are in Zechariah 3. <coughs> Zechariah chapter 3. So the robe of righteousness can also be translated as the robe of vindication. Because the Lord has vindicated you from the judgment of condemnation. Vindicated you from what you thought was your Sunday best, but was only a filthy rag. And I pray that the Lord has removed the filthy garments that you and I have and has covered us with the robe of his vindication. Pray to the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy on me on account of my unclean clothes. That is a prayer that God hears. The prayer to ask for money, God does not hear. <laughs> God will say, God, work. <laughs> have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, because mercy is what we truly need. Grace is what we truly need. Have mercy on me on account of my unclean clothes. So I don't want you to miss the joy of God's people. In Isaiah 61, he says, God's people shall greatly rejoice in the Lord. Amen. For what reason? The church will say, we rejoice in the Lord because Christ is giving us an abundant life but by the abundant life, they don't mean eternal life. They do not mean the glory of heaven. The abundant life for them means the latest car. That's not the abundant life. That's not what to rejoice in. We rejoice in that we have been given a new set of clothes. The righteousness of Christ. We must rejoice. Yes. Taylor made clothes for us. Yes. The garment that was given Joshua was not oversized. You know when someone is wearing clothes that don't belong to them? Yes. They are hanging all the way out of the fingers. <laughs> and you know it was handed down to them. For Isaiah, for Joshua, it was a perfect fit. Because the righteousness of Christ perfectly fits all of his people. Yeah? yeah. And yet how many people who call themselves Christians do not rejoice in the Lord for his gospel and his righteousness? They are not thinking in terms of sin. They are not thinking in terms of judgment. So they do not rejoice in the message of the cross. They just want things. But Christ is not one of the things that they want. They just want what Christ can give them. Here and now. It's because they do not understand. They do not understand the problem. They don't understand the garment problem. 
It is not just some mismatched clothes. The problem that Joshua had was not that he had some mismatching clothing. Like he had one part of the suit and he got the other, the pants from a different suit. All his clothes were unclean. Okay? So something, their problem is not having a high paying job. Cleaning the house. And low self-esteem. Or I just have low self-esteem of myself. I wish I could be better. No. <laughs> you cannot be better. The problem is not that even as women that we are failing to keep our homes clean. The dishes. Or that we don't have as many people who like us. This is a problem in the culture of the world. People are seeking to be liked by other sinners. Yeah? World culture celebrates things that perish. Right? It celebrates beauty that does not last. But I'm here to say your real problem remains even when all your dishes, all your laundry are clean. When your husband is behaving well, when the kids are doing well in school, when your bank account has a lot of money in it, when you have a lot of power over other people, you still have the one problem. Filthy garments. Unless God has done something. We naturally have a filthy garment problem. Every man and woman on earth has this problem. And we also have a devil problem. And a condemnation problem. Satan, the devil, justly accuses. The law will accuse us. And so we need Jesus to stand and say, I have removed your filthy garments from you. Or else they are condemned. I have removed. I have removed. Not I will remove. When you become a better person. I will remove your sin when you stop sinning. If this is what God would say, then the filthy garments could never be removed. Because you and I can never stop sinning. To one level or another we will sin. Until we are fully glorified in Christ Jesus. That's when sin shall be done away with in our own experience. Okay? So what is it that we need? From the airport, I was talking to a lot of brothers from here. We're talking politics, we're talking economics. And it seems, from my judgment, that the president is in trouble. (laughs) 
people are thinking if only we could have another election next year <laughs> we can go and revisit what we did last time <laughs> and change it okay you're not going to do that with Jesus if God were to leave you to make a decision for Jesus you will be regretting it again Jesus has to make a decision for you okay he has to remove the garments. Joshua needed Jesus. We need Jesus. Joshua could not remove his own sin. The garments of sin cannot be removed by you or from you by taking a warm shower or a bubble bath. You can wash yourself with milk and honey. <laughs> your garments still remain the same. The garments of sin cannot be removed without death, without proper payment. If you shall live, you need a filthy garment remover. We have a problem that is greater than anthrax. It is worse than COVID. We need the man who has the proper medicine to deal with it as to remove it or else it will spread. When you have a child who is in diapers, a child who is six months old, eight months old, if that child should try when they poop in themselves, if they should try to clean themselves, they can only spread the poop around. You're going to find poop everywhere where they're going to touch. Because they're trying to remove their own sin. What is the best way to clean a child who has pooped on themselves? The mother has to do the work. The mother who has clean hands has to come and wipe that child clean. So Christ, the one who has clean hands, has to come and wipe our sin away. Otherwise, we'll spread it around. Yes. That is the work of God. All creation preaches Christ. Remember, I told you that. Whatever we do, if we look closely, it is the testimony of Christ. To how a child is born, everything is the testimony of Christ. So, who is a Christian? You hear a lot of people say, Christians this and Christians that. But who is truly a Christian? A Christian is not one who goes to church on Sunday. <laughs> a there are a lot of people who go to things on Sunday. Because there are a lot of buildings that are open on Sunday. A Christian is one who has been given a filthy garment remover by God. And they rejoice not in their own righteousness, not in their own doing. They have no confidence in their own flesh. They rejoice in Christ. They rejoice in the righteousness of Christ that has been given them. The glory in the gospel of grace. 
But far too many Christians want to help Jesus to take off their clothes. Yeah? Like that child. <laughs> they say they can do the law. Yes. Trying to do the law is just spreading the poop around. Yeah? Yes. Because the law was given not to clean your mess, but to show your mess. To reveal that, brother, you have dirty clothes on. The law only shows that you are stinky and you are dirty. And you can't clean yourself up so as to be accepted by God. And so you are in trouble. So it is the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace that sees the sorry state of your filthiness and comes and changes your clothes. It washes you clean and gives you new garments that cannot be soiled by any kind of sin. If you try to put poop on the righteousness of Christ, it cannot stick. Yeah? It won't stick. It won't stick. So you hear a lot in the church. People saying, oh, I chose Jesus 25 years ago. Well, if you chose Jesus 25 years ago, you are too late. You are too late to the election. <laughs> because the ballot boxes were closed before you were born. <laughs> election was done before the angels were created. Very late. You can cast your vote, but it's too late. It's not going to be counted. <laughs> so Joshua did not invite Jesus, ask Jesus to remove his clothes. Jesus standing as the messenger of God without cause removed the filthy garments and he covered him with his own clothes. I'm repeating these things because these are the fundamentals this is the gospel teaching of God. Glory. And I'm saying these things so that I give you many words to understand what is going on in this gospel. Yeah. Okay? And that is saying salvation is the work of God alone. It is by grace alone. God does it and has done it without our help yes. or our suggestion. And Jesus, in this story, is not benefiting anything from Joshua. He freely justified him. He freely got Joshua acquitted. He did not ask Joshua for a payment. Okay? Now, let's talk about justification. As God has revealed it in the story. Joshua was justified in the removal of his garments and the putting on of the new garments. So what is justification? The gospel of Jesus Christ was given to answer this very most important question for you and I as sinners. 
how shall I remove the condemnation that is on me because of my filthy garments? So justification is a legal act, which means it is an act of the law. It is an act of God. God is he from his own good pleasure. His own will comes and acquits a sinner who was condemned to die, condemned to die because they broke his law. They failed to fulfill in themselves the obedience that the law requires of them. But God, by his grace, freely, without cause, remember I talked about without cause at the very beginning of the conference. God freely does not account their sin to them. He does not make them liable for the sin that they committed, not because they have repented. Not because they've become better people. Not because of their own righteousness or anything done by them or anything done in them. But on account of the righteousness of Christ Jesus who came and fulfilled the law of God for every one of his people. So the sinner is not only forgiven of sin, but is also credited with the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness is now theirs. So when God sees them, he doesn't see the sinner. He sees the sinner clogged with the righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ in all of his people. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The law of God always demands perfect obedience. Otherwise, it is not a law. If you put a speed limit of 100 kilometers an hour and the police are there standing with their cameras and you go past 150 and they don't stop you to give you a ticket, then that law is useless. <laughs> it's a useless law. God's law does not work like that. If he says... 100 kilometers an hour is 100 kilometers an hour. 90 kilometers an hour, you get a fine. Actually, in the United States, if there's a speed limit and you get so low behind, below the speed limit, you get a ticket because you're driving so slowly that you're going to cause another accident. You're being dangerous. Okay? You have to remain the speed limit. <laughs> so these are important words that have to come in our conversation of the gospel we have to know and we have to tell people that the law of God demands perfect obedience and when it is broken in one part you have broken the whole thing. And the law says 
on the day that you shall eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And the soul that sins must die, says the Lord. So the sinner owes God both obedience and death. Death because we were already sinners in Adam's disobedience. But just dying does not remove the first demand of the law, which is obedience. People don't go to heaven because they died. Yeah? They don't. So Christ had to come first and obey, fulfill the law in his life, and then pay the demand of death on the cross. So death was the final transaction of the Lord's obedience in the payment of our sin. And so he even obeyed to the point of death on the cross. That means in his whole life. The life of Christ was a life of complete obedience, of complete righteousness. In every way, he pleased the Father. And so his sacrifice was acceptable to him on our behalf. The cross then is the highest point of the work of Christ. And God wants us to preach Christ at the highest point where he put his son. The cross is the most important work that has ever been done in God's creation. It is the cross. And there shall never be any other work that comes close to it. Okay? So don't mess with the cross. Because if God could kill his son who was righteous, what about you and me? God killed Christ who was righteous. What about you and me? What chance do we stand if we were to stand by ourselves? None. So Christ came and made payment of sin and the curse of the law was removed. The wrath of God was poured on him and it was satisfied because only God can satisfy, can absorb the power of God. I'm going to say this again. For those who know a little bit about electricity, they always say you should have a ground just in case something happens. If there's not a ground, you may end up burning the house. But the ground will conduct the power into the ground. There's no man, there's no creature who could ground the power of God of judgment. Christ alone, God alone could absorb the power of God. And that's what Christ did. He removed the power of God's judgment by absorbing it into himself. So that you and I don't have to absorb it. Amen. 
just before the Lord went on the cross, he said this from the book of John. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That your son also may glorify you. That is and was the only way that he could remove the law by nailing it on the cross. The law had to be nailed on the cross. And all its condemnation. And when something is nailed, it is made helpless. It is made powerless. If you are nailed, you can't even wash, brush your own teeth. Someone has to brush them for you. So the law was made powerless by the cross. Okay? So do not remove it from the cross. It will come and condemn you. Okay? Now let's speak to the matter of Christ. Because these are things that people need to learn why God determined to bring Christ. Jesus could not be the perfect sacrifice if he had not already been perfectly perfected by the law, his obedience to the law. Jesus was God. The Lord did not make Jesus righteous. The law proved that Jesus was righteous. The law did not make Jesus righteous. It only proved, it confirmed who Jesus was. That he was a holy and righteous man. So he had to be under the law that it may be shown that he is fit to be the high priest and the sacrifice. Okay? To make payment for our sins. Jesus could not have died first and then tried to do the law after the resurrection. The ordering is very important to our understanding of salvation. I said in some message a few days ago that the law was for inspection. Just as the lamps in the Old Testament and the priests were inspected for blemishes, so Christ had to be inspected to see if he had any sin. So it was for qualifying him to be the spotless lamp of God according to his flesh. And that is why he was born of a woman and born under the law, that he may be subject to the law. God is not under the law. This is a thing that people don't get. God is not under the law. The police officer, they stand with a camera to catch someone who goes past the speed limit. But for them to catch the person, they go above the speed limit. They go at 120. They are breaking the law and they are trying to catch the person who broke the law. And yet the police officer never gets in trouble because they are not under that law. God is not under the law. Christ only became under the law 
when he took up human flesh. And he did that for our own sake. That he may be made responsible for keeping the law on our behalf. To give the law what it required of us. Yeah? Let's go to Leviticus 21. From verse 16 to 21. Leviticus 21, from 16 to 21. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. With any defect. Whatever defect you can think of. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame who has a mad face or any limp too long. You had to be measured your legs to make sure that they were both one meter exactly if the other one was one meter and one millimeter over you're out a man who has a broken foot right now i have a broken foot i have a defect a man with a broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf if you are just short you are disqualified or a man who has a defect in his eye Look at your eyes. If you see any little thing, God says you can't approach. Uh Or eczema. My son has eczema. Any pimple, any eczema, any any scab. Or is a eunuch, anyone who is castrated. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. That's a wonderful teaching. That will be a message for another day. So God is saying, this is what he requires for a person to approach him. They have to be perfect. Because you and I we could not pass that measurement. He will find something wrong with you. That's the point. He will find something that will disqualify you from approaching him. So you need a representative. You need a substitute to come who is perfect. And that substitute must be inspected to see if he is not a hunchback, to see if he is not too short, To see if he's not blind. And when he's talking about blindness, it's not talking about blindness of the eyes. It is blindness to the truth of God. Christ Jesus is the light of the world. And he was not a blind man. Okay? So he was inspected for blemishes. And none was found. That's why Mr. Pilate came and said, This is a just man. 
That's why Miss Pilate came and said, have nothing to do with just men. Because God was saying of his son, he has been inspected and there's no blemish. And he's ready to go on Mount Calvary and become the sacrifice that takes away the sins of his people. So now to Adam. Because remember I said the only two important people in the matter of salvation, in the history of humankind. People come and say, if only Adam had not sinned, we would not be in trouble. If only Adam. So I'm going to blame it on Adam. (laughs) Adam was innocent before his wife gave him the fruit to eat. But being innocent does not give you the right to approach God. A child who is born today is innocent in that they've done nothing to sin by themselves. All they're thinking is to get some milk. They cannot approach God based on that innocence. So Adam could not give us a title to eternal life by his innocence. Because eternal life does not belong to the man of the dark. That's me. Eternal life does not belong to the man of the dust. Eternal life belongs to God alone. Therefore, it can only be given You cannot work for eternal life. It can only be given. So Adam must fall. He must sin. Because what God requires must come through the second Adam. It must come through Christ. The righteousness of God. So thank God. Thank Adam for eating from the tree. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Thank Adam for eating from the tree. Adam must eat from the tree. It's teaching. If we understand Christ then we understand everything else. If we don't understand Christ, we can't understand Adam. We can't understand Joseph. We can't understand Moses. We can't understand Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Abraham. Everything is understood only when we have understood Christ. Okay? Uh, I was going to skip this, but let's go to it. Let's go to Leviticus 6, 8 to 11. Leviticus 6, 8 to 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning. 
and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment. So the priest is the one who is making the offering by fire. And his linen trousers he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering which the fire has consumed on the altar and he shall put them beside the altar. Verse 11, Then he shall take off his garments, put them, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. So this is what I want you to see. The priest took off the garments that he was wearing when he made the sacrifice signifying the removal of the sin through the sacrifice. The forgiveness or pardon of sin that necessitated the sacrifice. But when they were done with the sacrifice, God says, you must also change your clothes and put on new clothes, which signified that they now carried a new legal status before God. They were now clean, they were justified because the anger of God had been satisfied as was being preached by the ashes of the sacrifice. The ashes of the sacrifice. If you burn wood, you're going to have ashes. If you try to burn the ashes, add petrol to them. Add paraffin to them. Are the ashes going to burn? The ashes don't burn. You're only burning the petrol. Try to light up the ashes. They will not burn. Why? Because the anger has been consumed. So the ashes not burning anymore is God saying, my anger is satisfied in the dying of Christ. I am not going to be angry ever again because my anger against you was taken by the death of Christ. But now that the ashes have been burned to the priest, God says, you go change your clothes. Why? Because my people now have a different legal standing which means before the sacrifice was given they were under the condemnation of judgment. Or the judgment of condemnation. But now after Christ has died. There's been a change of clothes. They now have the righteousness of Christ. And that is why on the cross. When Christ had died. The thieves. The soldiers. The Roman soldiers. What did they do? They divided his garments. They came and took the garments of Christ. And they were wearing them. The Bible says they were very expensive garments that Jesus had on. What was on those garments? There was the blood of Christ on them. 
those garments that the soldiers took from Jesus had the blood of Christ on them. And that was in keeping with what the people said, let his blood be upon us and our children. Do you remember the who was the man who came and helped Jesus to carry the cross? He came and helped Jesus carry the cross. Why did he help Jesus carry the cross? Was he helping Jesus to save us? No. Jesus had been beaten by the Romans. How was his back? It was bleeding. It had a lot of blood. The blood of the Lamb. So when he came and carried the cross for Jesus, he was not helping Jesus. He was getting the blood of Jesus on himself. That's what God was preaching. He had the blood of Jesus on his back. His back. <laughs> Let his blood be upon us and our children. Amen. So the change of clothes by the high priest represented the forgiveness of our sins and the imputed righteousness that came from the work of atonement. Atonement means at one, split it, at one meant. Christ has made the atonement. He has made us at one with God. Okay? So justification is not just declaring someone as not guilty. It involves and assumes the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Okay? And because God has forgiven your sin, it is well with your soul. Amen. We shall bring a charge against God's elect. That's Paul in Romans 8. Who is it who condemns? It is God who justifies. It is Christ who died. Who ever lives to make intercession. The one who is on the right side or right hand of God. He ever lives to make intercession. On account of himself. Okay? So it is God who justified Joshua. So let us go back with all that, that I've said. I'm trying to build more meat for you to use in the understanding of the gospel. Amen. God says in Romans 8, who shall bring a charge? Who shall condemn the ones that are elect in Christ? Why does the Holy Spirit say that? Because you can't preach the gospel without election and predestination. You cannot preach the gospel without election and predestination. 
you can't have a gospel that justifies without Christ being the God-man. Christ is the God-man because he is God and man in one. As the God-man who mediates his righteousness on behalf of all his elect. So election is not based and cannot be based on the one who is wearing the filthy clothes. God cannot choose you because of you. God only chooses you because of himself. Because of Christ. So God could not have chosen and justified anyone based on what he would see in a person. Based on his foreseen faith. It is not true. It is men and women denying the truth of God. They come and say, we will not let this man, Jesus, to rule over us. But that is what many are calling the gospel. Okay? That's what was preached in a lot of places yesterday. So, let's look again at how Joshua was acquitted. He was justified freely. Justification before God has nothing to do with the doing or not doing of the one being justified. I'm going to repeat that statement. To be justified by God has nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what Christ did. It's about Christ. That's the only way God deals with the matter. The scriptures say in Romans 4, verse 5. But to him, Romans 4 is very glorious teaching. But to him who does not work, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Him who does not work for salvation. If you have seen any of my messages online, I have a banner in the back that says, Lazy boy gospel. That's my gospel. Lazy boy. To the one who does not work. Who just sits down and does nothing. God says, that's the one that I justify. The one who does not work and believes they don't have to do anything. Their faith, the faith of Christ is accounted to them for righteousness. Joshua did not work to be justified for his garments to be removed. And no good work could come from him. And if you still remember the story of Tamar and Judah. 
Tamar and Judah in Genesis. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah who had not had any children from Judah's sons. And all of Judah's sons died without raising a son to her. And so she decided to trick the father-in-law to sleep with her so that she would get pregnant by her father-in-law. And so she decided to play a harlot, a prostitute. And Judah fell for it. It seems the father-in-law loved prostitutes because he was walking on a road that had prostitutes. And he saw her and decided to sleep with her. And she got pregnant. And she bore a son. She had twins. And the line of Christ was in that scandal. And Judah was Christ. Judah was Christ. A type of Christ. And it seems it is only Judah who can make sinners, sinners like Tamar fruitful. And it seems when Judah was going to share his sheep, remember he had sheep, he was going to share his sheep. And the rod that he used to go share his sheep, somehow it was the rod that passed through where prostitutes were found. And that to say, Christ Jesus is the one who is walking on the roads where prostitutes are found. And when it was time for judgment, for Tamar to be condemned, remember Tamar said, if you want to sleep with me, you have to give me something that belongs to you. Give me your ring. Give me your stuff. I think there were three things there. The signet ring for the king, because Judah was kingly. Right? Tamar says, you cannot sleep with me until you give me something that belongs to you. And once that is done, we can do it. And Judah agreed. And when Tamar got pregnant, and Judah heard that his daughter-in-law was pregnant, he got mad. And he wanted Tamar to be condemned to die. In the words of Judah, he wanted Tamar to be burned. But when it came time for Tamar to be condemned, and they asked her, by whom are you pregnant? She came and said, by the man to whom these things belong, am I pregnant? And Judah did not uh, deny the pregnancy. Why? Because Judah is Christ. And when Christ makes you pregnant by his gospel, he will cause you to bring to him what he has given you. You do not talk about what you did for Christ. Because Tamar 
eldest daughter-in-law had done a lot of things for Judah as the father-in-law. She cooked for him. She ironed his clothes. But when it came for judgment, she did not talk about that. She did not talk about his work, her works for Judah. She only talked about the things that were given her by the father-in-law. So Judah was the type of Christ. When we come before God for judgment, we don't talk about ourselves. We talk about the things that God has given us in Christ. That's the message. We have been justified. We have been justified. God comes and says, now that you've been justified, go and sin no more. Because if you are justified before God, legally, you cannot sin anymore. Because all your sins were paid for by Christ. Because justification is a permanent possession. It is something that God does not do today, change his mind tomorrow. Once it's done, it's done forever. And we were justified at the cross. Go and sin no more does not mean that you and I are never going to sin. Or that our justification now depends on what we do after we've come to Christ. If that were the case, none would be saved who come to faith. In the court of heaven, a justified person is not considered a sinner anymore. Even though they still deal with sin here and there. When you read the New Testament, God talks of us as the saints of God. As the elect of God. As the bride of Christ. He never talks of us as those who are sinners anymore, even though we deal with sin. Because we are justified. Our sin does not condemn us anymore because our case was already tried and it was settled. Okay? Tried and settled in the representative. In our high priest. So the acquittal of Joshua was not just for Joshua. It was also for those that he represented. So when Christ came and died, when he was raised from the dead, the Bible says we died with Christ. And we were raised with Christ. And we are seated with Christ. So we are moving with Christ. So if you really want to know where you are, follow Christ. That's where you are. Follow Christ. So what matters here and now is not what you think about yourself. It's not how you feel about yourself. It is what God sees in you in Christ. Not what other people see you as you are. Because God does not see you apart from Christ. He has joined us to Christ. God sees us through the blood of Christ. He sees us as always righteous. As always pleasing to him. Because he is pleased with his son. And the work that he did. Joshua was justified 
freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Freely at the cross. None is justified who is justified or who is not justified by the redemption that is in Christ. That was one of the things that we talked about in our very opening message. We cannot have justification without a ransom payment in the form of the blood of Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord as we finish. Verse 9 of Zechariah 3. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So what is the stone that has been laid before Joshua that has seven eyes? What do you need seven eyes for? The seven eyes are the eyes of God. And that is not speaking to seven physical eyes like I have two, then you add five more. It is talking to perfect vision, to perfect knowledge. And that is God. That God knows all things with perfection. That's the seven eyes. And this stone has seven eyes. And this is the stone of stumbling. This is the rock of offense. That is Christ Jesus. And the iniquity of Joshua is removed in this stone. God says, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. How and where? How do you remove iniquity in one day? By the death of Christ. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering, one offering, one day, the one man, he has perfected forever those who are the sanctified. Sin was removed in the death of Christ on the cross, For all those who were in him, they were set free at the death of the high priest. Because without the death, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Let's hear this. I want to introduce a matter. This teaching. Teaching takes long. But it's important to help you build the understanding to communicate God's word. In the New Testament, there is what is called the indicative and the imperative. You need to write this down. The indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what God has done. The indicative is what Christ has done. 
all of salvation is in the indicative. God has chosen us in Christ. God did that. That's indicative. Christ redeemed us by his blood. That's indicative. God has justified us freely. That's indicative. Right? Christ has perfected us. That's indicative. So our standing before God is always in the indicative. It is always in something that God has done. This is very, very important, my brothers and sisters. Because a lot of people confuse the teaching of the New Testament when it begins to give instructions to God's people to say, oh, don't do this to each other. Forgive one another. Do not lie to one another. The commands that you find in the New Testament, there are more than 1,000 of them. They are called the imperatives or just commands. The commands are not given in the New Testament to cause your justification. They are not given to make you accepted by God by your doing of them. You do not, Sister Cecilia, forgive your husband so that you may be justified by God. You forgive him because you were justified by God. That's how you're supposed to read it. Okay? So we do not do what is asked or commanded of us in the New Testament for us to be justified. And a lot of preachers, they take the commands that we are supposed to do and say, if you are not doing those things, then you are not justified. So they are changing the message. You do not do anything to be justified. Christ did everything for our justification. The commands are for those who are the justified. Okay? The commands are given to those who are children. This brother here, um, I think I heard him say when he was giving his testimony, uh, he's going to be going to Zimbabwe. I believe he has children. He does not go about giving commands to all the children on his street. He gives commands only to his children. Whether the children do or follow them does not change anything. They are his children. Whether they obey or not, that's a different story. But they are not his children because of following the commands. So that is the teaching of indicative and imperative. We do not do to become children. We are made children by Christ, by election, by the cross, by redemption, by justification. It's very important because there are so many Christians who are under bondage, who are working so hard to try and be accepted by God by something that they are doing. They need to be set free from that bondage. And this indicative imperative, as long as you shall see me or hear from me, you're going to be hearing it. And I just wanted to lay it down for you 
in the next messages, in the next messages, whenever the Lord granted, we will actually have a full chapter where I show you and even ask you by reading that, is that an indicative or is that an imperative? Because when you do that, then you are rightly dividing the word of God. Okay? That helps God's people to have joy, to remove the fear that they may have. Because if I had been preaching for all these messages now and telling you what things to do, what things not to do, you would be feeling condemned by now. Because there are a lot of things that you are struggling with, things that you are failing to do. But that's not God's message. God's message is, is done. Be joyful for the garment that Christ has given you. Okay? Zechariah. Zechariah 3, 7, verse 7. That says the Lord of hosts. If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I'll give you places to walk among these who stand here. So the angel of the Lord, after everything that has happened in the story, he gives commands to Joshua and says, if you will walk in my ways and you keep my command, I'll bless you. I'll give you places and the privilege and access to me as the angels here have. That is to serve him as the angels do. But we need to understand things here. This is why teaching is very important. You can't just rush things. The command for Joshua to walk in the way and the blessing is not what caused the removal of the filthy garments. The command was given after the filthy garments were already removed. The command was not Joshua. If you walk in my ways, then I will remove the filthy garments. Then I will change the colors. No. He comes and he removes the clothes first. And he puts on new garments. And then he comes and says, you go and play nice. Be kind to other people. Yeah? Love one another. Because you have a change of clothes. Okay? So Jesus did not condition the salvation of Joshua on Joshua doing anything. Otherwise, that would not have happened. But also remember, Joshua was a type of Christ. So God is saying, if Christ would come and obey God, then he would be in charge of God's house, which is the church. And for Christ, he had to come and do that. And that's what he did. And that is why Christ is the head of the church. Hallelujah. Okay? So, the angel of the Lord said, the charges against Joshua would not stick to him because 
Jerusalem was chosen. Okay? So election is very important in the gospel. And Jesus is saying, yes, I agree that Joshua is sinful. I agree that Patrick is sinful. Okay? But this is my defense of him. He is mine. End of story. That's the reason given. He is mine. So because he is mine, no charge can stick on him. That's election. And people are busy fighting against election. <laughs> the church world hates the teaching of election. Because they want to be the ones who chose Jesus. They want to choose Jesus. Okay? So if we should ever be righteous before God, it is only because God chose us. God will ignore any accusation that shall ever come against you. I chose her. I chose him. So what we see there is that the angel of the Lord is the Lord Jesus. He is the advocate for Joshua. He is standing up for Joshua. He is defending Joshua. And he is winning. And Joshua is quiet when all this is happening. He knows that he is guilty. When you come before God, please do not talk. When you come before God, do not talk. You are not supposed to talk. You are not supposed to talk. When you go into the court, when you have a lawyer standing for you, Amen. you do not talk. Yes. The lawyer is the one who talks for you. In Matthew 7, from verse 20 to 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter. And he says, Many, many shall come to me on that day. I need you to hear this. Here says, many shall come to me on the day of judgment. And say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonderful things in your name? So many things we can't even mention them. And Jesus would then say, Thank you very much. I did not realize that you loved me that much. Jesus does not say that. He does not accept their testimony. But he does not deny what they did. Jesus does not say, Oh, you lied. You never prophesied. He does not deny of their works. He does not deny that they cast demons from people. Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you lawless ones. I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? Because they were talking when they were supposed to be quiet. 
Jesus alone is our wisdom, he should talk. And they were talking because they were not taught of God. When you have been taught of God, Jesus is your advocate before God. He talks. We remain quiet. That's why Joshua did not say a thing. The angel of the Lord did all the talking. Let Jesus do all the talking. Okay? Joshua, a type of Christ. Yeah? And when all that was done, the sin removed from Joshua, the sins of his people were also removed from him. But let's close this way. Give me a few more minutes to close. The text says, And I shall remove the iniquity of my people in one day. In one day. So the sins of God's people are not removed when you come to faith. Because I did not come to faith on the same day as you did. He did not come to faith on the same day as you did. And if that were the case, God is removing iniquity every day. But the Bible says, I will remove iniquity in one day. In one day. Which means all of God's people were justified one time. On the cross. That is God's message. That is the gospel of Christ. And that's how we ought to remember him and to celebrate his gospel. Oh, Amen. Amen. It's a long message. It's a long message. It's, it's difficult to stop when the message is not yours. The message is not mine, so I can't cut it. You force me to keep talking until it's done. It's his message for his people. Okay? People be talking, oh, the message was too long. And yet you want to go to heaven where all they talk about is Jesus. (laughs) The message was only three hours. In heaven, they always talk about Jesus. So why do you want to go there? If you can't sit down for three hours to hear about Jesus. Lord have mercy. God help us. Let us pray, my brothers and sisters. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many words, wonderful words of Christ. Help us to rejoice in what Christ has done. Help us to see the glory and hope that Christ has given us by his death. This man who was the righteous man, who gave us his garment, who caused the change of garments and gave us new clothes, robes of righteousness, rich robes of righteousness, of vindication. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your people. Make them glad. Make them hopeful. Make them loving because you love them and sacrifice for yourself. 
cause us to love one another for the sake of Christ. Thank you for your blessing in this place. May this gospel continue to go forth even through us and others that you may raise along the way. May we speak the same thing. Confess the same Jesus as Lord and our Savior. Thank you, Lord. Be with us in our going in and our going out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.